Okay, so we continue in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, so open up your Bibles to that chapter. We'll be focusing on the second half of that chapter, verses 12 through 20. Um, I've entitled this message, The Body of Christ, and uh, I just want to offer praise to to God um, in my sermon preparation. Um, This was a tough text, and uh, I looked at it and I thought, I I just don't know what I'm going to do with this text, and as I prayed, because approach the Word of God. It's a spiritual endeavor, and, uh, and he, was, uh, he was my great power and aid uh, to help, so praise him for that. You have a pet peeve? There's something that's your thing where you're like, I have one. I probably have more than one, but I'm going to focus on one. <laughs> One of my pet peeves is when people take cliches and treat them like gospel truth. I just hate that. When they take worldly sayings and they count them as inviolable, right? Let me give you a few. The ends justify the means. You've heard this? No, they don't. Not always. Almost never. Almost never when somebody utters that phrase, right? It's not true probably most of the time. Owning a home to raise your family in, that's a good end, right? I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a noble uh, goal. Um, but defrauding someone out of their life savings in order to buy it isn't justifiable means. And we could give lots of examples to disprove this cliche as this like sort of rock-solid truth. What about this one? Boys will be boys. Less and less are we hearing this in our cultural moment, with masculine traits being seen as necessarily oppressive, and with gender being seen as something fluid. But the slogan has long been used as a justification for boys being naughty and it being okay, for men getting into fights or talking dirty or treating women dishonorably, and that's okay, that's just how they are. Most times it's used, it doesn't mean something like, well, boys like to get their hands dirty and play in the dirt, or or they like to pretend to be soldiers. That's not normally when we hear this phrase. That would be okay. But it's a terrible thing to, to shake off immoral behavior by simply pronouncing the adage, boys will be boys. How about this? You just gotta have faith got to have faith, man. That's where it's at. You, you just got to have faith. In other words, if you just believe hard enough, your team will win, or you'll overcome an addiction, or you'll beat cancer, or you'll get a scholarship, or you fill in the blank. While setting goals and working hard to achieve them, depending on what those goals are, of course, that can be a very good thing. Believing alone, though, doesn't mean you'll get it despite this adage. I mean, did the Astros beat the Phillies in last year's World Series because Houston fans had more faith than Philadelphia fans? Believing, believing this saying, right, has disastrous effects. The Lord hasn't healed you of that disease, you see, because your faith isn't strong enough. 
That's some really perverted applications if you just you know, sort of take it lock, stock, and barrel. God hasn't given you a job yet because you don't trust him enough. I mean, we could go on and on. The Lord helps those who help themselves. He never gives us more than we can handle. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Give to the Lord and He'll give you twice in return. Nice guys finish last and we can go on and on. And the hard part is there's, there's some measure of truth in most of these, right? But I think you get my point. While slogans or mottos can be true, you have to be careful not to hold them out as your north star. You need to be spiritually discerning, remembering who you are and what your purpose is in this life. You need to weigh slogans against biblical truth. Because if you don't, worldly adages or catchy slogans can lead you to adopt sinful, dishonorable practices. Such was the case in Corinth. And we do it often too. So let's listen in. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. God who spoke this world into existence, who, who maintains it by the power of his word, speaks to us here. What might he do in us today if we considered his word? Pay careful attention now. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Well, from this text, I think this is the singular point of it, that our bodies were meant for glory, not gluttony. Our bodies were meant for glory, not gluttony. It seems like something that goes without saying, right? I mean, I don't think if we took a poll, uh, I don't think there'd be a single person that would be like, no, nah, our bodies weren't meant for glory. Or that our bodies, yes, they were made for gluttony, right? Um, but, but this is a simple truth, but it has sort of far-reaching uh, implications. It shapes us as a people if we'll hear this message and believe it. When we fall into unspiritual thinking about our behavior, 
it can lead us into some rather terrible places, places uh, where we can cease to live for Christ even. And when we do, we attempt to justify our behavior with our bodies, what we do. And that's what was happening in Corinth. And we need to look at what was going on there so we can identify it and, and be guarded against such behavior when it arises in our own midst. May the Lord help us to learn from Paul's correction of our ancestors here. Now, the passage starts with Paul examining slogans that the Corinthians were living by that led to gross sexual immorality. You heard the reference to prostitution a couple of times in the text. Now, this topic of sexual immorality has already come up. We, we, uh, we, we had a brush with it in chapter 4 with the case of the man having an ancestral affair with his stepmother. And apparently, it was not the only example of sexual immorality in the church As I said, Paul begins by looking at the Corinthians thinking about their bodies, how they were holding on to these sort of worldly slogans as words to live by when it came to making decisions about what they would do with their bodies. And then he ends by holding out a higher standard. So he starts by looking at the standards that the Corinthians were living by. Paul does this at the the beginning. And then he moves to this higher standard, this higher calling of how they ought to be um, living by, a higher purpose for their bodies. So he starts by examining the case for gluttony or excess, and then he holds out for them a different way to think of their bodies. First a case for gluttony and then a call to glory. So that's how we'll look at this text today. So the theme, our bodies were made for glory, not gluttony. We're essentially breaking into two pieces and examining them. Let's look first at the second, like the, 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 the case for gluttony. That's where we'll start. And we see it in the first uh, verse and a half of the text. Verses 12 into the first half of, of verse 13. There appears, as I've said, to have been a couple of worldly slogans that the church at Corinth had embraced. The first one we see there in verse 12, in fact, it's repeated twice. Paul cites it twice. All things are lawful for me. You see it there twice? He doesn't dismiss it out of hand, for there is some measure of truth in it. I mean, Jesus, Peter, and Paul himself proclaimed the freedom of being a Christian, being in Christ. Remember Jesus' word in John 8, 32? The truth will set you free, right? Peter in 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free. And then Paul in in another letter, Galatians 5 verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So as I said, this, this, this saying that the Corinthians had, all things are lawful for me, or to maybe think of it in a different way, I'm free to do whatever I want with my body, right? There is some measure of truth in it. The Christian life is about freedom. But even biblical truth comes in context. It comes in nuanced form, requiring discernment in its application and even its understanding. Let let me just quickly demonstrate from those three um, quotes I gave you from the New Testament. John 8, 31, Jesus had qualified what he said 
in these essential terms. Before he said, the truth will set you free, he said, if you abide in my word, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. So it's not just this, I'm free to do anything, whatever I feel like. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, if you devote yourself, if you, if you immerse yourself, if you take my word as, your, as, the, as the direction for your life, as where you'll find your satisfaction and joy and meaning, you'll have freedom. That's what he meant. So it comes in context, and we have to be thinking individuals. We can't just take up these stupid slogans that are half-truth and sort of live our lives by it. We have to be people of nuance. Christians have to be good thinkers, good readers of the Bible, and and that's what I'm trying to demonstrate here. Um, Peter had also issued a requisite condition to his, um, to, to, to that um, quote on freedom I gave you. Listen to 1 Peter 2.16. Live as people who are free, here's the rest of the verse, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You see, there's a context to it. There's a nuance. There's a, there's a way of taking even parts of Scripture and making sure we're not ripping it out of its context and, and, and the right meaning. Paul had likewise added a crucial stipulation when he said, for freedom Christ has set us free. A few verses later he said, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Okay. The Corinthians had sadly not been so thoughtful. They had taken these worldly slogans and and held on to them as if they were all that was necessary for making decisions about how to use their bodies. Apparently, they considered themselves free to do whatever, whatever their flesh longed for. This is seen in the other slogan they held dearly. Look at verse 13 there. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. If I'm hungry, I'm going to eat. Full stop. No nuance. I mean, is it okay to eat in every circumstance? I mean, think about it just for a minute. Just, just like examine that in your head for a second. The slogan seems to have been quoted to justify giving in to whatever their bodies lusted after. Not just food, but sexual cravings as well. This is why I use the word gluttony in the theme, right? The body was meant for glory, not gluttony. But again, thinking of gluttony with an expanded definition here, not just eating. I use gluttony because that's the metaphor that's being used here in the slogan. But, but you want to think of gluttony in terms of, of, of satisfying any lustful desire that your body has, including gross sexual immorality, which is what was going on in Corinth. The Corinthians' motto, I'm free to take whatever I want. If I desire, I'm going to go get it. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. And as much of it as I can get, that seems to be what was the, what was the uh, tone of, of that culture. But living in this kind of freedom isn't at all how spiritual people ought to live, is it? But, I mean, the, the book of 1 Corinthians, I've called, a, the, 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 you know, the sermon series, I've called a call to be spiritual. And they were not living like spiritual people. They were not living like new creatures in Christ here. 
living to unrestrained excess, seeing everything that's attainable as fair game in every circumstance, even to idolatrous levels, employing Christian liberty no matter the cost to others, that's simply not Christian. It's a grotesque counterfeit, in fact. It's a perverted picture of the church that has been sanctified in Christ Jesus. That was the language of the opening of the letter. He wrote to the church that had been sanctified in Christ Jesus. To live in this, this unrestrained freedom, as I've said, it's a cheap, distorted image of those who have been purified by the sacrifice of Christ as their Passover lamb, as we looked at last week in verse 7. And so Paul urged necessary corrections to their thinking. So he held them out. He said, listen, I know this, these are the slogans, right? But in the, in the next breath, he, he, um, he issued these corrections, pointing out the massive deficiencies of living according to these worldly slogans. First, he deals with the idea that all things are lawful for Christians. And as I've said, there's a sense in which this is absolutely true, but caveats and ex exceptions and limitations abound. And spiritual people using spiritual discernment are to apply them in order to enjoy the freedom that Christ purchased for us. There is freedom in Christ, friends. There is. But we have, to, we have to come from a biblical thinking. We have to have gospel logic as we, as we enjoy that freedom. And that's what Paul's doing here. That's the purpose of the correction. Things that were previously prohibited under the law of Moses, for those who follow Christ, they had been lifted. Many, many things. Christians no longer, for example, have to observe religious feasts and festivals. Paul even says it straight out in, in uh, the letter to um, <clears throat> uh, the Colossians. They no longer have to refrain from, um, from working on the Sabbath. They no longer have to engage in ceremonial washings and cleansing rituals before they're allowed to uh, enter into worship. Things like menstruation and skin diseases and coming into contact with those outside the faith, these things no longer disqualify the people of God for worship on a particular day. And as chapter 8 will explain, we're free to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols and, and animals previously forbidden to Jews are now uh, uh, okay to eat and, and on and on we could go. There is absolutely freedom in Christ to bring it up to modern day, we're free to drink alcohol, we're free to smoke a pipe, we're free to get a tattoo or a piercing, we're free to listen to rock and roll music. But there are, by necessity, limitations to these things. We continue to live in bodies that take good desires and turn them into idols and addictions. That's what our bodies do. They lust and lust and lust. Spiritual people don't simply let that drive the train, right? There's no longer a Sabbath rest requirement, so we can become workaholics, consumed with making money, shirking our responsibility to disciple our children because we're never around, never gathering for worship with the saints because we're free to work. Yes, you have freedom to work, but is your application of that freedom actually helpful? That's what Paul points out there in the, verse, in the first verse there. 
I'm free to get a tattoo, but I turn that freedom into an addiction. Or wanting tattoos even as an act of rebellion against my parents simply because they didn't think it was right and I'll show them. It's not that I want tattoos, I just want to show dishonor to my parents who didn't like them. Is that the right kind of freedom? I mean, yes, you have freedom to get tatted up, but is your expression of that freedom noble? Or could it even be enslaving? We have to be nuanced about these things. And what about the reality of living with weaker Christians? Those whose faith doesn't yet embrace the freedom that we actually do have in Christ. They're just not there yet. We can confuse them. We can even cause them to sin against their conscience when we drink alcohol in front of a brother, for example, who immaturely thinks alcohol is sinful per se. Yes, you have freedom to enjoy wine, but is doing so on this occasion or broadcasting it on social media loving others well? Could it even be evidence of your enslavement? See how he pushes against this. He's trying to show them that, that you can't simply take worldly philosophies and hang on to them even when there's like a sliver or a hint of truth in them and that be your guide for how to live. Finally, while a great many things are lawful for Christians, everything isn't. Immoral conduct, ungodly decisions are always out of bounds. You're not free to do anything. You're not free to do anything your body yearns for. We are, after all, living in bodies marked by sin and death. While our spirits are willing, our bodies are weak. While our souls have been awakened to the things of God, our sin nature within our flesh continues to demand its evil lusts be satisfied. So no, we're not free to do anything. There are a great many things that are rebellious toward God, hurtful toward others, by their very nature are just simply perverted, selfish, wicked. And chanting some slogan slogan about it being natural doesn't change that. That appears to be what the Corinthians were doing in this slogan in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. It's just natural. It's what it was made for. Let your mind think of other body parts and change up that slogan a little. It's as if the Corinthians were saying, whatever sexual appetites our bodies crave, they were meant to be fulfilled. Those appetites were meant to be fed, just like how we feed our stomachs when we're hungry. Because the text deals primarily with sexual immorality, it appears that it was cited as rationale for all kinds of sexual immorality. Adultery and incest and premarital relations and perhaps even homosexual behavior, that's included in the list in the last text, verse 9 and 10. And of course, prostitution, engaging in prostitution. The fact that it feels natural does not make something right. 
homosexuality is not good because people live with same-sex attractions. Well, I must have been made this way. It's natural. It's not. It's wrong. Trying to alter your hormones and genitalia to change your gender because you think who you are doesn't match up with how you feel, that's just not right. It's wrong. It's immoral. doesn't matter how you feel. Doesn't matter what appetite or hunger that you have inside of you. Giving in to such appetites is not the right way forward simply because you have them. We're not free to do whatever our bodies crave. Our bodies were not meant for gluttony, for giving in to every impulse. And the fact that our desires for things in this world will not last is proof enough. Did you hear me? Our bodies were not made for gluttony, having this, this sort of gluttonous appetite for the things of this world. They weren't made for that because those things will not last. And that's what we read there in verse 13. God will destroy both one and the other. When Christ returns and judges the sinful world, such cravings that we've been discussing here this morning will be shown to be what they are, sinful and worthy of destruction. And if that isn't enough, Paul says it very plainly in verse 18. Let your eyes drop down. Flee from sexual immorality. I don't care what appetites you have. No matter your hunger, impulses, desires, flee from sexual immorality. So the case for lustful overindulgence, for sexual gluttony, doesn't hold up slogan or no slogan, and it's because our bodies were made for glory, not gluttony. And so let's turn to that call for glory now. It's the rest of the text. It's the second half of 13 through to the end. Here Paul directs us to the true purpose for which we were given bodies. Look at the second half of verse 13 there. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Our bodies are meant for the Lord. He has holy purposes for our bodies. He made us with bodies and then called us to be his people. He has purposes for all the, whole, the wholeness of us, including our bodies. We were made, only human beings now, we were made bearing his image. So throughout the world, there's all of these people with bodies that have this reflection of the reality of Jesus. We were created with the capacity to dwell with God, to fellowship with him, to delight in him, to serve him and worship him. What's more, we reflect his character and beauty and life-giving nature as we do whatever we can with our bodies to help other people, to graciously make their lives better than they would be without us. We reflect God when we do that. 
I'm just giving you some examples of just our bodies are meant for the Lord, and He has holy purposes for us. We imitate Christ when we willingly put other people's interests above our own, and we do that with our bodies as we serve. And when we do so, the glory of the Lord shines in this creation. He gets glory as we devote ourselves to do what He does, help others enjoy abundant lives, soaking up Christ-like love. Our bodies were made for glory, friends, not gluttony. Infinitely better than saying our bodies are designed to satisfy whatever lusts we have. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Infinitely better than, than that kind of thinking is a, is a motto like this. Verse 13, the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You see that reciprocal kind of slogany feel to it? The body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In other words, our bodies were meant for the Lord's purposes, for His glory to be seen in them. Our bodies were made for glory, for people to see how we use them and say, the master of that guy's body, the, the, the one that gal submits her body to, is not themselves. It's not from within them. Those Christians live like their bodies are in service to a holy master. But it's not just a one-way street. There was a reciprocal nature to, to, that, to that saying Paul replaces the body and food thing with, right? The body's meant for the Lord, the Lord for the body. If we, had, if we, if we simply had a directive from the Lord that was one way, you can only use your bodies in the way I tell you, something like that. If he issued that command to us but did nothing himself to empower us to keep it, we would have no ability to do it. We have no ability to live holy lives in his service. We'd, we'd give in to every lustful desire, even engaging in prostitution, as Paul mentions in this text. But God doesn't tell us here merely that our bodies are meant for him. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, verse 13 says, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You see that? It's key to the text. Our bodies are for the Lord, but so too the Lord is for our bodies. He expects that we will think of our bodies, use our bodies for Him, but He likewise sees Himself as for us. Listen to how one old Presbyterian writer put it. I like this. Listen now. He says, the, speaking of this reciprocal nature, he says, the one stands in an intimate relation to the other. The body is designed to be a member of Christ in the dwelling place of the Spirit, and he so regards it. We get some we get a peek into what the Lord thinks about our bodies, and, and, and he's He's for us. He does things to empower us to live and give our bodies to Him. That's the idea here. But how does the Lord regard Himself for our bodies? How is the Lord for our bodies? 
Well, first, in what his resurrection has accomplished. Look there in verse 14. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Yes, friends, Jesus is alive. He has been risen from the grave, but so too will his people. It's an incredible thing when you think about it. His resurrection, he was regarding what would happen to us after his resurrection. Quite unlike the temporary nature of our stomach and its need to digest food to survive, our bodies are destined for eternity, gloriously resurrected into bodies like that of our Savior. As John would write, we shall be like him. The Lord is for our bodies. If God will raise us up by his unimaginable power, listen now, if that's going to happen, if God is going to use his massive power to raise us from the dead, the power to call up life from death, that same power, that same power that God employed to raise Jesus Christ up, then he is for us. And he will employ that power for us. We are united in power to Jesus. If our future is tied up with Him, then we know He is for us and regards our body as an extension of His own. Knowing that, that our bodies are made for glory, not gluttony, enables us to say no to ungodliness. Think about your future, friends. Thinking about the glory of your future in the resurrection helps you to say no to ungodliness now. Paul prayed that the Ephesians would experience that very thing, this nearness of Christ and that power. In Ephesians 2.19, he prayed that they might know this, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. He prayed that they would know the power that was available to them, the very power that God used to raise Jesus. That power is available to you to live a holy life with your bodies. Friends, experience it. Ask God for, for that experience, for the power to live a holy life with your bodies, knowing that that power to raise Jesus from the dead is available to you because your future is wrapped up in His. So are you struggling with lust? Are you struggling with sexual sin? Even if in your mind? How do you handle it? Do you try to just sheer determination? Just do it. Be all you can be. doesn't work. We don't have any power in, in and of ourselves. But consider that your body was made for glory as promised by Christ's resurrection. If you're a Christian, your body will be raised up like His. Live in the power of knowing that your future is connected to the Savior's in that way. That's how you know that the Lord is for our bodies. 
But here's another. Yes, it's seen in his resurrection, but it's also seen in you being part of Christ's body. It's seen in you being pulled into his plan, his mission. You're on the team with him. You're an integral part of that team. Look at verse 15 there, the first part. I'm going to read it from the Christian Standard Bible. It says, don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? We have been brought into intimate connection with the Lord and everything he's about. His mission, his purposes, his life is extended into our own into our bodies, and we're called up to continue that mission. Our arms and legs and minds and every part of us is for His use, for the continuation of what He's doing in this world. It's as if He were still here, but it's us. Yes, the Spirit of Christ is in us. I don't mean to say something otherwise. But the point is, is that Jesus Christ is not physically here anymore. His body is not among us here. But we are. We've been called to be part of his body, the body of Christ, to go out and continue his mission. And friends, that's glorious. That's, that's what I mean by we were made for glory, our bodies. Right? That's one aspect of it. This connection is through our intimate union with him. How are we part of his body? Because we are so united to him by faith. Look at verse 17. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. One mind, one purpose, on the same page, loving what he loves having the same goals, the same thinking, the same motivations. When we placed our faith in Jesus to save us, we threw our lot in with His. We said, everything I got is garbage. I'm with you. And we grow into that union. Like, we're, positionally, like, the Lord, the Father sees us in Christ immediately upon our faith. But we, we grow in our experience of that, of that union. And, and that's what we're being called to do here. Remember, you're united with Christ. You're, you're part of his body. So live like it. It's a glorious thing. Our mind begins to think his thoughts after him. We're transformed into seeing our purpose in life lining up with His purposes. The intimacy of this union is, is so extraordinary. It's pictured in the marriage union. Right? He, he quotes from Genesis here, and, and, and Paul does a little bit more work in this area in Ephesians 5, right? Where he speaks explicitly of the marriage union being designed so that it would picture the intimate relationship between Christ and His church. That's why marriage was, was put in this world in large measure, to picture that, that intimacy. And when we say intimacy, we mean all the, everything that there is to, to be about intimacy, including sexual union. 
Our bodies were meant for glory, not gluttony. And we know this because we have been made part of Christ. We, we have been intimately united to Him. We're part of His body. And so, what's the implication? Why does Paul say this here? He says it so that they would realize it would be unthinkable then to be intimate with immorality. To, be, to try to be part of a prostitute's body. Someone whose life goals are opposed to Christ's mission. We've been intimately connected to Christ, pictured in the sexual union of a husband and wife. It would be unthinkable then to destroy that picture by committing intimate acts with someone outside of marriage. To set afire a, a the picture that God designed. That's the gospel logic that Paul's employing here. And it's, and it's used in verses 15 through 17 there. Well, Paul keeps piling on reasons that we might see that our bodies were made for Christ, for His glory, not for gluttony, not for giving in to sexual, sexually immoral cravings, but rather for His glory. Not only are, are, are our bodies destined for resurrection unto eternal bodies, free from sinful lusts, not only have our bodies been made part of Christ's body, but our bodies are also a temple of the Holy Spirit, verse 19 says. Boy, that's, that phrase is carrying a lot of luggage from the Old Testament. To worship God in Israel, you had to go to the temple in Jerusalem. It was a holy place. You couldn't touch anything you wanted. You couldn't go into any part of the courtyard you wanted. And you couldn't come having done whatever you wanted to do with your bodies. There's lots and lots of restrictions. But that's not how Christians worship God. We don't have to go anywhere to worship God. No longer do we need to maintain ritual purity to worship God at a temple. No longer do we follow Israel's pattern of getting clean and staying clean in order to approach God. No, the Spirit of Christ dwells within us all the time. There's no barrier to our worship. He's, he's here. He resides within us. And in light of that incredible privilege, friends, think about it. God with you all the time. In light of that incredible privilege, as an act of thanksgiving, our bodies that he resides within somehow, we keep them free of impure, impure sexual acts. As an act of worship, as an act of thanksgiving, that we have this freedom to be in his presence all the time. And if resurrection an intimate connection with Christ, our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit, if all of that's not enough to see that our bodies were made for glory and not gluttony, Paul brings the final word. 
Look at the second half of verse 19 there. Do you not know you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You want to know why you should flee sexual immorality with your bodies? They're not yours. Yeah, I know, it feels like it's your body. You're the one that feels the aches and pains. You're the one that tries to keep them healthy and, and, and goes to the doctor to fix it when it's broken, whatever. It feels a lot like it's yours, but it actually is not yours. Your body is not yours, Christian friend. Your body was, was purchased. There was a transaction that occurred. Your body was ransomed from sin at the cost of Christ's sinless body. He laid down his body to buy your body. He died for you. He bled out for you. He was crushed under the Father's wrath for you, the wrath that you deserved for your sins. He bought your body for himself. Your body belongs to Christ for his glorious purposes, to, to continue his glorious redemptive plan in this world. Your body was made and remade in Christ for glory, not gluttony. A lot of power in this text, friends. You struggling with sexual sin? You struggling with the cravings inside your body that you know are wrong? Struggling with that? you got a lot of ammunition here. Glorious ammunition. God has done such things for you. Your future is resurrection unto a sinless body in His presence forever. He's given you the honor of being part of Him, part of what He's doing in this world. He has sent His Spirit to actually take up permanent residence within you. His holy presence inside of you. And He bought you at the cost of Himself. Our bodies are meant for glory, not for gluttony. Reject any so-called wise sayings that undercut this. Reject anything that you yourself try to justify your sexual sins by. Because we do that, right? We come up with like, well, you know, it's okay because X. The Lord is for you. He expects you to use your body to continue his mission, and he has done everything to convince you, everything to enable you for his exalted purposes. So live in that freedom. In freedom, flee sexual immorality. Fight against sexual gluttony because you're free. Glorify God in your body because He's for you. Be spiritual people. Don't follow worldly thinking about anything, even our own bodies.
I trust that's a blessing and a help to you today. As you take a moment of quiet reflection, examine your life. Think about the things you're struggling with. Perhaps, time, perhaps this morning is a time for repentance. Repentance concerning those sins, also perhaps repentance for trying to fight them in your own power as if you had that kind of power. Repentance for squandering the power that, that Christ provided, provides to you. Perhaps today's a day to think about accountability. Listen to the Spirit's call within you. Take just a few moments before we proceed to an elder installation. Um, and uh, Misty or Joel, would one of you run and get the uh, kids? They want to be part of that. So take a few moments now of quiet reflection over the Word.